Good morning, LBC Radio. This is Corey Rosen with The Story, and today I have a special guest, John Terlazzo, with me. John Terlazzo gave his first public poetry reading at Martin Memorial Library, York, PA, when he was 18 years old with virtually no publicity. He read his early poems to an audience numbering 85 that night. Out of that reading, and in the two years that followed, Terlazzo has co-founded the York Poets Union, a loosely knit group of some 300 poets and writers who presented public readings and writing workshops. A truly egalitarian group, each member had the right to call himself or herself president of the York Poets Union if that would in some way serve them. Since that time, Terlazzo has given hundreds of poetry readings and concerts of his original songs in Pennsylvania, Maryland, Vermont, New York, Massachusetts, and other areas of the U.S., as well as Mexico, Canada, and Europe. John has performed with various musical groups, including the Widowed Horse Folk Review, a band of beggars, and the New Transcend- Transcendentalists. And over and for over 25 years, now has been the leader and songwriter of the for the ensemble of Voices in the Hall. Voices in the Hall offers a up a rich array of strong har- vocal harmo- <laughs> strong vocal harmonies. And combined with his old world instrumentation, which include acoustic guitars, accordion, flute, cello, mandolin, recorders, tin whistles, upright and fretless bass, percussion, piano, and Hammond B3 organs. The result is a kind of modern surrealist gypsy music, a phrase coined by one of the audience members after seeing the performed band in Lenox, Massachusetts, a music that is both timeless and centering. John Terlazzo's songs and poems take us through the surreal and otherworldly village terrains. John Terlazzo speaks and howls, dances and whispers, and raves when he reads poetry, sings, or teaches in a classroom or the retreat center. He laughs and invites us into our wonder and our grief, discussing ideas with his audience then and there, and sermonizes and apologizes and then takes us all back and laughs some more. He invites us into some 30-odd years of his poetry. And with all that said, John, how are you doing today? <laughs> Just fine. Good. Good. So what started your love for poetry and the song? Mm. Where did, you, did it just come to naturally? Did you hear a song on the radio? Did you hear an album? I, I think it was a combination of uh, things in my very young life. Um, I was, you know, when I was maybe about nine years old, um, I had some very intensely beautiful experiences that I can't even begin to define. Uh, and combined with that, I was a, uh, I was a kid in a Catholic school mm. which was a very mixed bag, but one of the really wonderful things about it was that there were nuns there who told mystical folk tales that were astonishing and that would just set me on fire when they would speak, you know. And those those really um, moved deeply within me at approximately the same time when I was nine that the Beatles arose in the world. Mm. And those things combined and combined with the counterculture that arose uh, from many places, but but most clearly from and through the Beatles. Um, all of that, you know, led me to 
Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen, Bruce Coburn, and many more. And uh, Joni Mitchell, Laura Nero, a lot of really potent and amazing and wonderful songwriters. Um, and then all of that combined with, you know, sort of what feels to me like almost information from past lives when I look at medieval music and um, as well as modern music. It's all of these things sort of combined together. Uh, so. So you found a love for music through the Beatles, and you, you were even talking about some medieval stuff. Was that from the Catholic school at all? Well, uh, sh- sure, I think so. I think one of the most one of the best things about that experience, one of the most beautiful, was, um, you know, singing in Latin when you're a little kid. That's a pretty powerful thing. and Very hard thing. <laughs> uh, oh, but it was wonderful. And, um, you know, to lift up those voices together that way was, was pretty great. So I, I'm, I'm sure that that started your interest in uh, intercultural or multicultural music. Yeah. Where did you find your specific, I guess that's where it is, but how did it grow? Did you start listening to other cultures' music and then uh, figure Well, out- again, you know, being um, being a young kid in the 60s, mm-hmm. um, and there was, a, there was a tremendous amount of organic wisdom that arose. Uh, young people were absolutely tearing down walls, and they were embracing one another. And so I... Uh, that combined with some nuns in my school who told me, who taught me that we, were, that we are all the children of God, mm-hmm. that, there, that there's only one race. Um, it, it, multiculturalism became an automatic for me mm-hmm. to the point that I don't even think of myself as an American. I never really have. I think of myself as a human being and that we're all here on this planet and we're all here together. And unless we embrace one another, we're doomed. So do you find music as that uh, venue of bringing people together? Yes. I think that's one of, the, one of many things that, that will do that. And certainly, again, in the 60s, uh, I was, you know, I was um, diving into music from all sorts of cultures and all sorts of races and um, uh, learning a, a tremendous amount from that and through that. And again, it was really organic. I mean, it was the sort of mainstream AM radio pop music. You know, Bobby Vinton and that sort of thing meant nothing to us once the Beatles arose. And then mm-hmm. for, out of that comes, you know, you're, you're seeing um, uh, the Mercy Beat from England. You're seeing Motown. You're seeing... Um, uh, psychedelic music arising in you know in California and again in England and all of that is completely organic mm-hmm. the 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 music corporations or you know the no the corporations were scratching their heads they didn't know what to do with that right the music companies at that time was you know were owned by people who loved music who deeply loved music and they weren't that huge um and uh that was a really, really potent time to be growing music in, in you know, the garden. Um, so that was, that was a great um, experience for me, a great introduction as a child. So 
as you uh, you start expanding your worldview and your and getting more interested in the music, what was your first you uh, was your first concert that poet that poetry place where the eighty five people in the audience or oh no 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 I was eight, I was sorry mm-hmm. I was eighteen when that happened uh, no no much earlier than that um, uh, so I saw the Beatles when I was nine. I was the lead singer in my first band, which was called Conspiracy, when I was 10. Mm. And the other guys in the band were all older guys. They were like, you know, 11, 12, maybe 13. And um, so, you know, we were doing music wherever we could. And Mm. we did it. We did. uh, We played some songs at. um, I don't know, some sort of thing that was happening in our Catholic school and. uh, you know, a number of different performers, and we sang The Doors, Light My Fire, Mm. uh, which caused the Monsignor to stand up and storm out of the room. So we felt like, oh, we must be doing something right. Um, And so we just, we grew from there. Um, Then when I was about 13, 1968, here in Lancaster, at Franklin and Marshall College, I, I'm 13, and I went to see Jefferson Airplane, mm-hmm. the most incredible live uh, experience, first concert of a live band. Um, I mean, I had seen some other bands in my town, but I'm saying someone famous, and they were not just merely famous. They were, when you put these six people together on a stage, it was incredible the 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 energy between these six people as they were creating i mean these songs were never done the same way twice and they were mm-hmm. always and there was no showbiz involved in it they weren't trying to be impressive mm-hmm. they were just creating great song and that was more impressive than any showbiz can ever be you know mm-hmm. uh so what was it like back then to record music at all? Did you, did you deal with any of that, or was it just performing or and just writing music? Uh, it was mostly performing. I mean, we you know we started to record some stuff, but it was like you know real to real things. And um, uh, one of my great friends, a guy named Doug Smith, uh, he had some real to real equipment, and he loved to record. And so when we were teenagers, uh, high school, and then beyond that, um, Doug was, you know, we'd play anywhere, and Doug would come and record it hmm. in these various bands that we had put together. And uh, he had a big bakery truck, which he had all these reel-to-reel things in, and he would, you know, drive to wherever we were and do this stuff. Um, and he's been recording my albums ever since, uh, now all through all sorts of advances in technology. But So do those early recordings exist anywhere? Some of them do, and in fact, um, this the most recent album. We've we've done nine or ten albums now, and the most recent one was a remake of our of my first album, which was called Honor Among Thieves. But this remake now is that original album plus an additional seven songs of live stuff that was recorded in like the late 1970s. Doug recorded that mm. that stuff. So seven songs there of which I'm very pleased. And we're 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 toying with the idea of doing a double album of live recorded songs of voices in the hall and various incarnations 
um, over a 40-year period. So we're toying with that. We'll see where it goes. So, so Doug has all that. Yeah, he's got all that stuff in his studio. So the idea of that album would be uh, like a performance in maybe 1970 and then a performance done in 1984 mm-hmm. and then and just seeing the differences and mm-hmm. the little stuff. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. That's something I've been really interested in doing because I write songs and there are, uh, for example, I, wor- I wrote a worship song, but in my mind, it, I orchestrated it with the, an orchestra, but granted... For my senior so for for my senior project, <laughs> we don't have a, uh, a an orchestra just on hand to use, so I, I did it in you know the regular worship set with guitars and bass, and it sounded really really good. Mm-hmm. But I also really really enjoy the 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 art the orchestral version as well. Yeah. So and there's and nobody has it's it's not the case that people re-release songs done different ways. So I've, but I've always been interested in doing that. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad I've, I finally met someone who's, yeah, yeah, who's yeah. willing to do yeah, that. Yeah. That's awesome. So when you do, so you did say you did do it also with a with a uh, orchestra. No, I I use I use Logic at all, um, and I use sample in uh, orchestra that way. Okay. So I would love to record it with like live orchestra, but I just don't know that many musicians yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, so. That's that's the main way that I did it. But for my senior project, I had to gra- grab a uh, few of the music worship arts majors, and they did a stellar job. Yeah, yeah. Nice. So it almost made me consider switching it over, but yeah, I just I love I'm a, such a fan of the strings and, and the French horns that I just had to have. Yeah, yeah. Had to have it. Yeah. So yeah. So we're uh working your way up into. When did you start? So you did songs at nine throughout the ages. And did you also do poetry as well? The writing stuff? Or? Yeah. Um, so I was singing songs like since I was like 10, nine, 10, uh, and in bands. I didn't start writing songs till high school. Mm. And it was around that time that I also really started digging into poetry. What were your poetry? Uh, what were your inspirations in regard to poets? Oh, all sorts of people. Um, uh, Yeats, uh, Leonard Cohen, um, Allen Ginsberg, who I, again, I met here in Lancaster one day. Uh, uh, Mirabai and Lala were Persian uh, and Hindu mystics long ago. Uh, Hafiz, who is also one of those. Um, I mean, it goes on and on. There's lots and lots of people there. Gotcha. So, what what was the subject matter of your poems when you first started, and has that changed at all throughout the years? Well, uh, you know, on a certain level, I mean, human beings change as they grow older. Right. But on a certain level, I think the I think a lot of the subject matter has remained the same, mm. uh, but it's seen through various different ways. Yeah, different eyes. Um, you know, the, the, I mean, one of the things, you know, you remember, I remember, uh, and maybe you've seen some of these interviews, I don't know, that, you know, they would, they would talk to the Beatles, you know, and say, well, mm-hmm. what, what made you want to do this? And they would say, well, we saw this Elvis Presley concert, and there were all these girls screaming at him, and, and we thought, oh, that looks like a good job, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and they would joke about that. Of course, there's a lot more that drew them to it than that. Um, so there was some of that, I'm sure, but there was also 
again, just from a really early age, I've had, um, and it's not even something that I can really describe in words or explain in words, but I've had some really pretty powerful sort of mystic, for lack of a better term, experiences. And um, that moves me very deeply into poetry and music. And both of those from an angle of trying to comprehend the incomprehensible, mm. trying to speak what cannot be spoken. That's, that's what my whole life has been about, and I'm enormously grateful about that. But it, it, uh, I, think it, I think anything that is, you know, if we're, if we're going to use the term art, then it has to go very deep. And it has mm-hmm. to go from a place that has some psychic weight to it. And it has to go from a place that is deep, deep, deep down inside the heart and can't be defined in mere words. So poetry is digging deep into your soul and finding specific ways of saying things that are unsayable in a cohesive manner. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean... Uh, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an absolute given that every single human being, the, the very finest and the most vile and, and horrific, nonetheless, every single human being comes into this world right from the beginning longing for truth, mm-hmm. longing for essence. And every single... If we're fortunate, we are, we are taught to put our ego aside and move into a place of deep and profound uh, love and compassion. If we're, if we're wise, that's what we're doing with our children. We're, we're, we're leading them in that direction. Mm-hmm. And when we go there, then the realization has to be that no matter what religion you're um, grasping for the essence from or truth no matter uh, science philosophy all of this should be a place of great tenderness and humility for all of us to embrace to me it's like um, when people talk about god as if they know what exactly is the story or exactly are the rules I tend to shy away a little bit because, it, to me, it's like, you want to talk about God? We should be climbing, you know, we should be um, sort of crawling under a rock in humility mm-hmm. because it's not going to be described in words. We have to go much deeper than that. There, there is a tendency to want to describe God in, these, in a box, and it, it's impossible if God is supposed to be this unfathomably um, and, and at least in the Christian standpoint, uh, unfathomable, indescribable, or indescribable, infinite, all powerful, all knowing. There's if if he we're just simply not mm-hmm. all powerful, all knowing. We can't be everywhere at once, and it's it we don't have the language or experience to even define that outside of those words or what it's like to be like outside of those words. It, it's just it's it would. I'm sure it's driven people insane 
<laughs> trying to think about that because it, it's so incomprehensible that and I'm sure the brain would just shut off if it tried to comprehend at all. So I, I really do think it's it is unfortunate that people do try to uh, create a box for something so infinite and so um, vast yeah. as God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, God, truth, love. These are words that don't come close to defining what we're trying to approach there. And... Um, and certainly not in English English language at all. Yeah, and we can you know we can go much deeper in our experience again if we're doing it from a place of uh, open heartedness and humility, and um, and then it's possible I think. Well, I know that it's possible then for for human beings to um, move into their true nature and the um what do you believe the human's true nature might be well uh again to try to say this in words is absurd Mm -hmm. but um let me sort of try to couch it a little bit this way a very good friend of mine a guy named marty nabholz um marty once said to me you know just because you're born into the body of a human baby doesn't automatically make you human. And he said, you know, that there's labor you have to do throughout your life to grow into what it means to become a human being. Mm-hmm. And that is something that is the opposite of materialism. Right. And I believe he's absolutely right. And so, you know, I think that there have been many cultures on earth at different times that, well, uh, number one, I think it's important to say that every culture on earth that uh, is worth its salt, and so we have to say everyone then, within all of these traditions, within all of these cultures, every great mystic, whether whether we're talking about Jesus or Buddha, uh, Al-Halaj, um, uh, you know, on and on and on, you know, all of these are beings that when they were walking on this planet said, um, you have to rein in your ego so that it doesn't run the show. And many traditions and cultures learned that from these beings and worked with that. America now, since, say, the Industrial Revolution, um, you know, or a little bit past that, America now in particular, and sort of the West, if you want to use that term, has really moved into a place of um, not only have we not taught generation after generation you have to rein in your ego. You have to put it in its place so it's not running the show. Not only have we not taught that to children, but instead we've replaced it with capitalism, with an economic system that says ego is God, and your ego is God, and go buy some more stuff. 
And that's really heartbreaking on many levels, including the fact that it's led us into a system where real charlatans have risen into some very high places and caused horrific, violent havoc in the world. And uh, so we really need to look at that. And if we really care about our children, then we have to become elders, not merely, uh, you know, good businessmen or something like that. Mm. Um, I mean, another example. A number of years ago, you know, the, the, it, it became very obvious and clear to people that caffeine was not good for children. So, so you know, it was advised that they should stop putting caffeine into so many sodas that would then mm -hmm. cause damage to children. Rather than doing the responsible adult thing, which would have been that, right. instead they literally got together in boardrooms around tables and said, hey, how can we sell more caffeine to children? And then they created more drinks that had more caffeine and that were more addictive and therefore more damaging to children. Okay, and now we can focus on selling it to that crowd and they'll buy it because they'll see it as sort of, um, uh, you know, rebellious. Mm -hmm. Think about how horrible that is. And if that had happened in some, in some um, culture 500 years ago, sort of a tribal culture, and someone said, well, we found something that's really bad for children, and someone else said, oh, let's see if we can figure out how to sell more of it to them, be cast out absolutely yeah. would have been cast out but now we give those people big awards and big raises you know there, that's i want to push back slightly but you are right there there's the fda or, or at least the american food system is ultimately horrible for us to eat like mm -hmm. the processed foods and yeah. the just like, american cheese is almost fake yeah it's almost fake cheese yeah um but i will push back slightly on the capitalism idea uh-huh because capitalism is just a private trade of goods and services, uh -huh. at least in my opinion. So yeah. it's I do believe that it's it's helpful for, but things can always be taken too far. Yeah, and that's what that's what I definitely think. Yeah, and all I'm before. saying about that is I'm not I'm not uh, so capitalism, communism, socialism. These are just economic systems. They're ways yeah. of handling money. On their own, they have no um, ill intent. Th th yeah, they have no ill intent on their own, mm -hmm. and there's no morality one way or the other. It's just okay. How do we handle money? This is the way we'll do it. What matters is that the beings in charge of these different traditions, these different societies, handle it correctly. If they are coming from a place of great heart, then those systems, any one of those three systems, would work beautifully. But if they're coming from a place of, I want more for myself, whether it's money or power or both, then you have the horrific thing that you're seeing now, which is, you know, um, the, the, the previous president signed laws that said corporations are free to poison the water and the air as much as they want. Go ahead. Feel free. Free reign. This is the water and the air that you and I breathe and drink that our children, our grandchildren, his grandchildren 
This is complete insanity, all for a dollar to make more money. This is really broken. And so the problem isn't capitalism itself. If you have some really wise and open-hearted and thoughtful, compassionate beings running the system, beautiful. It could work wonderfully. It's just the people who are in charge of that. And that, and that goes for all things because you know, the, the evils of Stalin or uh, yeah. current— Yeah, that's what yeah. I'm saying. Yeah, Putin, a lunatic. You know, the, the best of what um, uh, communism could have given us or the best of what socialism could give us, you know, it's, it's there. It is possible. It is possible. But the problem is, is that, again, you know, Putin is just another— um, Authoritarian. Yeah, he's a thug. You know, he, and he wants what he wants for himself, and he doesn't care about anybody else. So, uh, you know, that's the issue, and that's what we need to look at. And, um, again, I think encouraging people to move into deeper and deeper areas of thought and education and um, humble and compassionate learning together is extremely important, unlike, you know, there's a movement right now to really shut down education altogether. We can't let that happen. What do you think about the, because uh, the whole idea behind that movement, the shut down education movement, is to bring the, like, family closer closer together. It won't. Do you think, but do you think that that is part of, part of our problem, that our families have been so distant, we don't ask our children, hey, how was school today? Or we don't care about where we're, sending our children off to and then and then they come back and sometimes they hate us or sometimes do you think because we we abandon our children for you know we have to get that salary we have to yeah that's a very bad idea and and again that's something that um uh that's a very horrific ill that capitalism has visited upon us and it's a shame because it doesn't have to be that way it shouldn't be that way um Throughout every culture on earth, going back as far as one can go back, um, it's always been the case that adult males have uh, initiated boys into becoming men, and adult women have initiated girls into becoming women. They've shown them the way, and they've done it through simple things like teaching, you know, how to do, you know, how to build a fire, how to knit a sweater but also much more intensely beautiful and thoughtful and inner uh, labors. Um, and, for instance, uh, um, preparing a young person for it and then taking that young person into the forest and drawing a circle in the ground and um, uh, giving that person some water and... He, know, he or she knows exactly what's going to happen, which is they're going to spend the next several days there alone. And they're not going to go out of the circle. Um, and then there's much more that comes you know, along right. with that. Uh, with all these traditions, you know, the, the, for instance, in Polynesia, they used to have this tradition. After many, many days of, of meditation and preparation to do it, after this meditation and preparation... Mm-hmm. Then uh, these people who were, you know, one of the initiations was, for instance, 
tying these long vines to their ankles and leaping from a cliff. And the vines were um, measured at exactly the right length so that when the person came, they, they would, their nose would come like you know, six to eight inches from the ground. Now, we can't comprehend somebody trying to teach somebody to do that. No. However, think about this. They were right. doing that with a very deep, solid, meaningful intent. In now, in recent exactly, exactly. Now, in recent years, that's not there. But what did we do? What did we put in in its place without even recognizing the connection? Bungee jumping, which is exactly the same, same thing, thing, except yep. there's no preparation, there's no deep thought, there's no meaning, and you charge the kid eighty-five dollars to do it. That is what you call abuse of children. This is, you know, it's, it's absolutely horrific. So another example would be meditation. Mm. Um, in India, they would teach young people to meditate for long hours, something I deeply um, would encourage. Uh, and, and there's more. There's more. I, again, at, at one point, um, there was tattooing that different tribes would mm. do. But you only got that tattoo after you accomplished this or that thing over there. Right. After you accomplished your, you know, one-month walk into the desert and back or whatever it was. Now you can get a tattoo from anybody for anything, whether it looks good or not. And you can get millions of them as long as you're willing to pay for it. But there's no meaning behind it. Or often there often, is Oftentimes none. there's no, yes. yes. There may be some, some tattoo people who, who are working on another level that I'm not aware of. That's very possible. But... There's there's this one really one of my favorite uh, kind of examples of what you're talking about is there, there was a tribe in I believe it was Africa that uh, when you were born they would create a song just for you yeah and uh, whenever you did something bad they would all kind of come around and sing you that song and I feel like if that would be one that's the one of the most because yeah it's it's all about conviction yeah and feeling that. I did a wrong. There's there's a, a lack of repentance and a lack of self-reflection in yes. America today where you have to realize, hey, maybe I did mess up. And there's a lack of ownership of of being, being messed up. Yeah. And you got to realize and there there's there seems to be a push of like social acceptance for all these different things that like, oh, it's okay that I did this. But you, sometimes you have to realize that it's not okay that I did that, and yeah. I'm sorry. You're absolutely right. And again, though, it, you know, how do you do that when... When, um, when everyone's pushing you to, to do that. Yeah, or when you, when you allow a person who's, who's been uh, accused of rape 35 times to become president of the United States without anybody questioning that, without anybody bringing that to court. How do, you, how do you then teach children you need to be responsible? Mm -mm. It doesn't work that way. You've got to, you've got to make a decision. So you think either, either nobody's above the law you know, or the whole thing is shot and it's ruined. So you think it's a top-down problem, not a bottom-up problem? Absolutely. Um, every every uh, child, uh, every young being on this planet, from, you know, whether, it's, whether we're talking about human beings or cows or dogs or all the way down to amoebas and paramecium. Every single one of these beings learns how to be an adult version of itself by witnessing the adults around it. Now, since the Industrial Revolution, 
most young people hardly see the adults around them, except for a few hours at night, a couple minutes in the morning. At least the most important adults to them. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that's an atrocity, and it is causing all of all of the horrific violence that we're seeing. It, I mean, it, it's a major cause of violence. It's a major reason why so many males in our culture think that a gun is so important in their life, a killing machine. And it's just because they're empty. They're, they're empty. Um, you know, we've, we've, we've raised people to think of heart as the very last thing, if at all. You know, rather, instead, they're, they're much more interested in, well, me. You know, it's, again, it's that ego thing. Mm-hmm. Me, me, it's about me. It's all me. You know, you know and it's just, um, that's monstrous, and it's very destructive, and, it'll, and it will be the poisoned ending of this planet if we don't get our act together really quick. Uh, so and and I think a major part of that has to be from my perspective um it's always been really clear to me from the time I was a little kid that materialism is a waste of time um obtaining more getting more it's just a waste of time and I just you know we always made I've always made a really clear decision in my life that if, um, well, uh, you know, we home we for the most part homeschooled our kids, my mm-hmm. wife and I, and uh, our two kids, and that was just an absolutely glorious experience. And part of that was maybe selfish because we just wanted to have a really solid relationship with them, and we thought that's more important than anything else, and. We didn't have a television. We didn't have electricity for a lot of the time they were growing up. We lived off the grid for a lot of that time. Uh, but even when we did have electricity, we didn't have a TV, and we read aloud all the time. Mm. So we would read aloud to our kids 40 hours a week easy, sometimes more, either one or both of us, you know, trading back and forth. Um, and part of how that resulted was our kids came to love stories mm-hmm. and imagery imagery and words and uh ideas and thoughts and reading at a very young age uh and they you know it's like they kind of you know when you're constantly sitting there with a the kid you know leaning into your shoulder and you're reading to them and you're you know holding the book here they don't always know every word that's in there. No. But, you know, you're reading uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. They might not know every word that describes the lion, but they get the lion. Yes. And they get the intensity and the power. And they get, um, you know, and lots of other books are like this, too. Uh, um, Roald Dahl, who wrote the BFG, mm. Uh, mm. and a whole lot of other great... He has a brilliant book of short stories. You know... You learn. They learned the meaning of these bigger words without us having to really sort of nail it into them because they understood it in the context of the story. They'd hear it in my voice or my wife's voice, and 
as a result, they were also, by the way, looking over your shoulder all the time at the book. So they started to learn to read on their own. And they were already grasping words before anybody was teaching them how to form them on the paper. Right. Um, so, and, you know, it just became really clear to me that, that if, you, if, you have to, if you have to make a choice between more money or more time with your children. Oh, absolutely. It's always yeah, the it more has time to be. with your children. And, and that means you just own less and you buy less. And the you, thing you, is— You adapt to your children, not to— Yeah. You have to adapt your lifestyle that's best supports your child, yeah. obviously. And there have been times, you know, where, um, you know, we struggled some with money, but nothing horrific. And there's, a, there's, a, there's another kind of wealth that's there and that remains there to this day. We're all really, really close. And what we did, too, was when we were homeschooling, we did it with a group of other families that were very like-minded. Mm. And all those kids grew up together. And they're all really good friends now. When, now that they're in their 40s, you know, in 30s, um, they're all really good friends, and they're my friends, and vice versa. They don't think of me as, you know, Mr. Terlazzo or anything like that, because we all grew up, you know, we, we, we were all family together, community, a village together. Uh, so, I'm not saying that I'm perfect, but I, right. what I am saying is that um, we need to place humanity and heart and love and compassion and thought, deep thought, way above, oh, what else am I going to buy today? Mm -hmm. Way above, you know, what's the next thing that I can own? You know, how can I save my money to buy this? You know, it's, we have to go much deeper or, or we're shot. We're, we're completely lost if we don't do that. Again, this planet is being poisoned and Unless we get to work right away and turn that around. I was listening to NPR yesterday. And um, um, with climate change, there's a whole big section of India right now where it's 120 degrees every day. and has oh, been yeah. for weeks. Yeah. And this is a place where there's no air conditioning. Right. And People's sandals will literally melt to yes, the roads. Yeah. And if we don't get to work immediately... I'm tired of hearing this foolishness that um, uh, climate change is a hoax. And, you know, it's like, come on, man, grow up, wake up. We're talking about the air that you breathe, the water that you drink, the planet that you live on. And you and anybody that you might love, if you're, comp you know, if you're, if you're able to do that, if you know what love means, whether it's for your children or whatever, understand that they will die horrible deaths if we don't get to work awfully quick have you heard of the technology that navy has where so there's this growing technology that i really think is being has gone under the radar um but the navy they can take co2 out of the water and convert it into energy and it's we're almost at the point where we can start taking co2 and people people laugh at it. it's like well you just created trees but we're gonna need more than trees if we're exactly. gonna if we're gonna yeah. be able to take CO two out of the air and then yeah. convert that into its own energy that is completely green. Yeah. So the, the, the technology is coming. I find it though it's I would rather because um, here's the problem that we have in today's society. We are such an interconnected global community that if we and there's some people who just completely want to shut off oil. If we did that millions billions maybe might die overnight 
because you got to think about that that we are the main ways we get energy is from oil from burning coal uh using oil and the, the smallest percent is from solar and wind which yeah. is which is temporary no it can't be done over it, it can't, can't be, be done, done overnight. overnight that's for sure but but we can invest in new technologies right and the other thing that needs to happen is to uh insist adamantly that those corporations that run oil companies um, that run fossil fuels, that they get to work right away and invest a lot of time and energy into, tra- into switching over the labors of their workers. Because it's, it's horrible that this whole thing is like, you know, oh, they're going to take our coal away. Well, I'm going to vote against, you know, it's like, no, that's not what, that's not what this is about. We're going to give you other jobs, right. but yes. those corporations have to be forced to do that because all they want is their fast buck as soon as possible. So that has to be changed dramatically. And and solar and wind are absolutely viable. Yes. But they you are. have to you have to absolutely invest the time and energy into making them happen while backing off from the other thing. It's it's something that cannot happen overnight and, right. and that's something that I really wish wasn't as mainstream as it is the the turning it off overnight because that's that's I mean, we saw what happened with with COVID, or and many people yeah. died from starvation, and so the, yeah. you know the, the whole supply chain issue that we're having right now yeah. from shutting down pretty right. much what would everything was shut down with oil. Yeah, it's a, there's no way that we can do it overnight. But yes, it can be it can be a transitional thing. But we have to we have to fund 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 for these yeah. new technologies because right. we can't go all electric because guess what runs our electric grid? Right, coal right. and oil. Right. <laughs> Right. It's 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 always something that we have to keep pushing and work on new technologies like taking CO2 out of the air and then yeah. converting that into some sort of substance that is green or going into nuclear, which is a lot safer than what it was 40, 50 years ago. I have very strong opinions about that, which, I'll, you know, so I'll differ with you on that one. Mm. They They still have not figured out what to do with the waste. And as long as that's the case... I think that there's a, there's a newer technology that uses beads instead, so it uses up it, it uses it completely and turn and it co- converts it all into just heat energy at that point, and so which uses yeah I've heard steam. some things about that I'm not sure I buy that yet but but anyway anyway yeah politics and and climate change aside we want to get into our uh, what is it that makes us create mu- music or what 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 part of that inspires us what the human draw to story we kind of touched on that a little bit we, we didn't really get into like the meat and potatoes of mm. what makes us feel the need to say stories what 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 is the human need to create art for others for ourselves and on and on do you think it comes from god do you think it comes from well, I think I think again that it's not something you can put words around. Words. It, you know, the 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 essence, the ground of being. Um, you know, all of these words that we try to use to try to comprehend that essence, you know, that, and yet we. Again, none of those words will ever work fully. Mm-hmm. Um, so would you say an apt description would be taking the metaphysical into the physical? 
sort of. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's, I think that's part of why we write um, songs, paint pictures, and so on, uh, dance. You know, great, great dance. Um, it, I think it is. I think. Well, I guess on a certain level, I think everything that we do, but most especially in my mind, art, is about that labor that I was speaking of, of earlier of to become human. There's la- there are certain mm-hmm. labors we have to do. And that's part of it. And that's a major part of it to me. Um, you think uh, art, meditation, and so on. And that... Here, let me tell you, there's a wonderful 1933, I think it was, Albert Einstein had a conversation with a great Indian poet named Rabindranath Tagore, who was wonderful. Two amazing beings sitting down talking mm-hmm. together. And uh, I read a transcript of their conversation. And one of the things in particular that, that was mind-boggling to me and was so beautiful was <clears throat> one of them, and I don't remember which one, was trying to, you know, was saying, um, how do we, you know, how can we, how can we evolve enough to see the, the real depths of what's around us? Mm. And the other one said, yeah, because here's the scenario right now. And he said, you can take a moth to the great libraries of the world. And to that moth, the entire library is a great, unbelievably endless meal. Mm -hmm. It can eat every page in all those books. And it will eat that without being in any way aware of the wisdom of what's imparted on those page mm-hmm. pages in words. He said that's where human beings are at right now. Right. And that this whole universe is, you know, is that great library. But we are just totally stuck on, you know, pleasing our tongue the way that little moth would be. Not the tongue literally, but more the yeah. ego, the ego. What can I do next that'll be fun? What can I do next that'll, you know, make me, uh, you know, feel good? Mm-hmm. And it's like, and that's, that's the story there. It's like if we, if we move deeply into art, if we move deeply into meditation, um, and there are other areas of life um, that maybe I'm not particularly involved with. I'm sure that, you know, for instance, I'm not very much interested in sports. But I'm sure that there are some people that know how to move into sports, perhaps especially running, in ways that take them into deeper and deeper places. Oh, absolutely. There's so many studies of like, you know, you can have the runner's high where you run after run after a while and it just becomes natural and it's and you feel really good about it because it, it it's releases these endorphins and these uh positive other chemicals that I can't remember the names right, of right now. Right, right. But uh, it, it's it's interesting how um, different humans find pleasure and like purpose in other things, whether it be sports, arts, uh, or whatever. 
Um, so would you say that, um, would you say that not participating in the arts is a loss of you, of your humanity? Well, I think that particularly if we're, if we're replacing it then with stuff that's really empty, uh, then yes, a, a, an enormous amount of what it means to be human is lost. And a person, m- many people in this culture will not recognize that until they're on their deathbed, and many of them won't recognize it even then. Um, but there is, there is nothing... First of all, uh, let me say that I don't believe in the idea of talent. I believe wholly that um, every single human being has the ability, in, born into them, mm-hmm. has the ability to create great works of art, whether it's you know, music, poetry, painting, saxophone, cello, you know, ballet, whatever. Mm-hmm. Every single being, every single human being has that great ability to really excel. It's a matter of whether they get encouraged to do so or whether it gets crushed under the iron boot. And our culture mostly crushes it under the iron boot. And that's part of, you know, maybe I'm stubborn, but I'm, it's part of what I'm enormously grateful about. That I, there, there's, no, there's, no, there's, there's virtually no economic viability to being an artist in, modern, in this modern world. Uh, it's very rare. But so what? So what, yeah. Because right. it gives me riches on another level that are so much deeper. And I'm going to do it no matter what happens. Um, and fortunately, thank God, you know, there have been enough people interested in what I do that, it, that they do support it. And I can live very frugally and simply, but thank God, you know, that there are people who love the work and that are drawn to it and, um, and, and who then begin to create themselves. That's the most important thing. So we're kind of running out our time on the radio. You have brought us a few songs of yours. The first one we're going to listen to is The Mists of Algiers. Mm. And so do you want to introduce that piece, talk about what, it's, what, what it is, what it's about at all? Uh, now let's just listen to it, and then if you want to ask me a question, okay, maybe we could cool. do that. Well, this is um, well, this is one of your first songs, isn't it? Uh, oh no, uh, this is this is from our most recent album. Mm-hmm. So this is from I, mean, I think we put the album out. I think maybe two years ago or a year and a half ago. Oh, this is the Mists of Algiers by John Terlazzo. Temporal explosion 
visions And your dance was exquisite Every reckless motion Fall down before Down on your knees Lay low your offering A buckhorn and lilies Show her your breastplate the holes made by spears But don't raise your gaze on The mists of Algiers How precious your eyelids Tattooed in cold Forged where the voice reigns The smoldering soul I have faith that you'll transcend The poison in your bone Rise above all you've seen down in that hole. Fall down before. Don't raise your gaze on the silhouettes of Algiers. All I thought I Down.
the holes made by spears and humble your gaze on the mists of So one of the questions I would have about that piece is that, is it about a woman or a place? Yes. Hey, okay, <laughs> fair enough. Um, yeah, uh, again, this is one of those songs that is not... Um, some songs are more obvious to me, but some just come from someplace, and I don't question it. So this is more... My a, job is to get out of the way and right. just let it come through. Um, it, I mean, it has a few... Um, there are a few words in there that maybe it would be useful for people to know. Uh, it says, lay down your offering of bakur and lilies. Uh, mm. Bakur is a, a very old Persian combination of ointments and unguents. You know, it's like a sort of very old world perfumes. Um, and, and it also in the song um, mentions, uh, let's see, where's the phrase here? Um, And the Amrit floods the tongue, washes down over my chest. The Amrit uh, in India, Amrit is um, it's a it's a very uh, so there's a gland in the center of your forehead, pineal yeah, right. gland, and the pineal gland. Um, I remember many years ago, when I first started doing sitting meditation, I met a scientist at that time who was totally fascinated with this because the pineal gland. Um, produces a, a substance that um, is, is completely on its own. And it's, it's sort of a, I don't want to use the word too solidly, but maybe let's say a visionary substance. Mm. But the thing is for that substance to, be, to come into being, it requires light. And there's no light in right. the center of your skull. <laughs> um, and so that's an interesting thing because here we have this very specific, clear, scientific fact. It's growing here in the center of your forehead. There's no light there. And combine that with the fact that um, Indian mystics, Hindus, Sufis, uh, have been saying for many, 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 many centuries, they've been talking about the Amrit, which mm -hmm. is a gift from God, which is this um, uh, flo flowing nectar that comes from the center of the forehead uh, in meditation in particular. So um, that's what that's about. But it, you know, I don't, some of these songs, I just, again. It just came to you. I, yeah, I do my best to just get out of the way and just write down what's been given. And, uh, yeah. Well, if you want to listen to more of these songs, you can follow John on, on Spotify. Are you on Spotify? I, actually, I'm not on Spotify. I've had mixed feelings about Spotify, but I, I'm, it may be on there in the future. We'll see. But uh, it's 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 there through Bandcamp at the Bandcamp. moment. Bandcamp. Uh, yeah. Is there a specific? And through my website. You know, if you just go to johntrelazo.com, oh, there there's some stuff there you can click on. And do you do events? When, when is your next event? Is yeah, concerts and things. Um, yeah, well, so, you know, with um, uh, – with the pandemic, of course, we shut down and didn't do anything publicly for mm -hmm. two years or a little more. 
Uh, so we we just did a, a thing last week just for fun outdoors. We're doing another outdoor thing at um, Unitarian Universalist Church of York, uh, June 10th, which is a Friday night. Yeah. Uh, well, if you want to see more of him, you can go to that event or you can go to his website. We're going to go back to the radio and continue live on Facebook.com for slash the story where you'll hear some of John's personal poems and a bit more of his life with that said i hope you guys have enjoyed this podcast